more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Grace Dietzler. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you are a graduate student or postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination was pre-recorded, and we are excited to be joined by Scott Mitchell. Scott is a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences, and his research is all about the impacts of land management practices on native bee and non-pollinator communities. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, We're happy to have you uh, and to talk all about bees and uh, non-pollinating species today. So as I just kind of mentioned in in that intro, your research is all about the impacts of um, land management practices. Um, But I think before we sort of dive into exactly what you're doing, we first need to discuss how Oregon's native bees are kind of so unlike what I think most people think of when they think of bee, which is a honeybee. Um, This was like a completely new thing for me that I learned. So why don't we start there? Sure. Yeah. So uh, like you mentioned, most of Oregon's native bees are pretty different from what a lot of people think of when they think of bees. So most people probably think of, like you said, honeybees when you say the word bee. Um, People also may think of bumblebees, but um, while bumblebees are native to the state, they're pretty small numbers in terms of the diversity that they represent compared to other native bee species. So in Oregon, we have several hundred native species, and in the particular study area I work in, we have somewhere between 150 to 200 documented species. Um, Most of these species are actually small solitary insects. So unlike honeybees, which live in a hive, These species are just a single female individual that's foraging on flowers and provisioning nest cells for her offspring, and then she'll die at the end of the season. Um, Then, of course, there's bumblebees, which are, you know, big, fuzzy, bumbly bees uh, that are somewhat social, but they don't have huge hives like honeybees. They typically have nests that may be tens or up to hundreds of individuals. And those nests are only a single season long, unlike honeybees, which a honeybee hive can persist for quite a long time. Um, And 
Yeah. So a lot of our species also nest in the ground, which is pretty cool. Uh, somewhere between 70 to 80% of our species are ground nesting bees. Other bees nest in stems from plants or or like the bumblebees might nest in in small hives or small colonies. Yeah, I don't know if I'm just ignorant for not knowing that, but my mind was blown when I learned that. <laughs> and maybe um, it will be the same for many of our uh, our other listeners. Um, and just quickly, the other sort of group of um, uh, species that you study are non-pollinators. So can you um, talk to us a little bit what that group is, um, what kind of insects are part of that group? Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's all, all of what I study is invertebrates. They're all um, spineless creatures. <laughs> uh, what we mean by non-pollinators is I specifically look at beneficial non-pollinating insects so, and other invertebrates. So that could be things like wasps or beetles that may be carrying out some kind of predation function. So they're helping in in terms of agricultural settings, they can help producers control pest invertebrates on their farms. It could be things like centipedes or millipedes or spiders that can also be predators or they can help cycle nutrients in an ecosystem. Um, really, it's pretty broad what we mean by beneficial or non non-pollinator beneficials, though for my work, it's mostly predators and parasitoids that we're interested in. So let's dive a little bit into the native bee study. So you're looking at broadly forest management practices and how they influence community composition of these native bee species. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what forest management practices you're looking at? Yeah, so I work in this really cool place called Starkey Experimental Forest and Range, which is managed by the U.S. Forest Service um, and is a great place for doing research because we know a whole lot about what's going on on that range. So the two management practices that we're specifically interested in with my study on how they influence bees is forest thinning, specifically forest thinning that's designed to make a forest safer for forest fires and ungulate population densities. And specifically in our study system, we're interested in elk. Um, there are deer in our study system, but they're just not nearly as abundant as the elk on the landscape. Um, so those are kind of the two management practices that we're interested in looking at. And so what are the... Um... So you have, talk us, I guess, through a little more about what the treatments are for the thinning and the um, ungulate population density, and maybe also touching on um, what you would expect to see in terms of um, native bee community for all of those different treatments. Sure. So the in terms of the ungulate herbivory, uh, we have two different treatments. We have a high density and a low density treatment. Um, and half of our sites are located in the high density treatment and half are located in the low density treatment. What's really cool about our study area is we know exactly how many individual elk are present in both the high and the low density treatments. And we also, well, not we, but the Forest Service has collars on some of those animals. So we can actually figure out where those elk are spending their time. Um, so beyond just the high density and low density um, treatments, we can look at site-specific utilization. So throughout a season, how much are those elk actually in or within the area of the sites that we're interested in looking at the bee and plant communities in? Um, and then with the forest thinning practices, what 
what we have is we have 24 sites in our study area and 12 of those sites are in a thinning treatment. So they're in, in small patches of forest that will be thinned as part of this fuels reduction thinning project. Um, and then half of our sites are, are paired with those and they're in control forests that won't be thinned. Um, yeah. And so you were also asking how we think those might influence the bee and plant communities. Um, so we think a lot of the ways that this will influence bee communities is mediated by how it'll influence blooming plants in these sites. So when you think about elk, elk like to eat plants and they are pretty big animals, so they can also trample plants. So both by eating plants or blooms and by trampling or crushing flowers, they have the potential to influence the flower communities in a site. Um, and so we think that there's potentially some ways that elk could influence bee communities. And I can talk more about that later too. Um, but then in terms of the forest thinning, we also think that that'll largely be mediated by um, changes in the understory vegetation and changes in the blooming plant communities. Um, so if you thin a site, thin a forest, you might expect there to be a less dense canopy um, because you've removed trees and there's now more gaps in the canopy. And by making a less dense canopy, you would expect there to be more solar radiation reaching the ground and the understory layer in those forests. Um, and with more solar radiation, there's more energy available for plants to grow and to produce blooms, which are, you know, reproductive structures on the plant. And if they're producing more blooms, we might expect more bees to be present in those sites that are thinned. Um, there's also likely some non-bloom mediated things happening there. So when you thin a forest, suddenly you produce a whole bunch of woody debris and some bees like to nest in woody debris. Um, so we might expect to see increases in the abundance of those particular species over time. <laughs> Probably not right away, but over time. Um, and then you might also expect some bees are pretty dependent on air temperatures for flight. Um, a lot of bees can't fly until it's a certain temperature. Some bees like bumblebees are capable of shivering to warm themselves up and fly in cooler temperatures. But a lot of native bees actually require air temperature to reach a certain point before they can actually fly and start foraging on flowers. So if you open up a canopy and you're getting more solar radiation on a site, it might be warmer, which could in turn influence the bee communities. Is there also the potential argument that um, higher, thinking back to the ungulates, so higher elk densities um, could potentially lead to like higher nutrient loads for the soil. And that could, right. If there's more elk and they're eating more then they're pooping more. Um, and so that could potentially like, you know, spur more growth of plants or does the sort of, uh, does the foraging of high densities of elk and the trampling of many elk sort of outweigh that benefit? Sure. Um, I, I think it's possible, and, and there's certainly a phenomenon. I, I don't know that this has been observed in, in the kind of forest ecosystems we work in, but there's certainly been a phenomenon in like prairie ecosystems that is sometimes commonly called the green wave, um, where bison would come through and graze an area like crazy and uh, basically cycle a whole bunch of nutrients, like you're saying, and fertilize the soil. And then you'd get this big growth of plants because... Um, all the nitrogen rich defecation and urination from the bison. Um, I don't 
know that in our particular study area, the elk density is high enough to make changes like that happen. Um, and I suspect any changes there would be outweighed by trampling or by consumption of blooms and, and by elk just structurally altering the vegetation. Um, Do you have, so are these sites in the same forest? Yeah, they're all in the same, they're, they're all in the Starkey Experimental Forest and Range and all in a particular unit of that forest. Um, Starkey, the uplands in particular where we work are pretty heterogeneous in terms of the distribution of forest on the landscape. So oftentimes the patches that we're working in are somewhat small, isolated patches of forest um, that may be surrounded by less dense forest or surrounded by like grassland or, or dry scab lands. Okay, so you have kind of a, a distribution of a couple different biomes maybe. Do you have any overlap between your um, thinning and like your thinning project and your ungulate uh, project? Do you expect any kind of interaction effect between the two? Yeah, we do have overlap between the two. So half of our thin sites and control sites are in the low density elk treatment and half are in the high density elk treatment. Um, we do expect there to be some kind of overlap to be going on there. Um, you know, like there's been quite a few studies that show that deer, for instance, really enjoy hanging out in clear cuts. Um, and when you get a bunch of plants growing up in an understory after you thin, there's a pretty good chance that the deer are going to like that too, or, or the elk are going to like that too. Um, so I, I suspect that we'll see some interactions between the two. Um, and we're hoping to tease some of that out in the next couple of years. All right. So you've, you've set us up by telling us, you know, a little bit about native bees and um, your site um, out at Starkey and what you're maybe, um, well, what you're hoping to achieve and so, sort of some of your hypotheses. Tell us about how you actually go about collecting all of this um, data to sort of answer or address some of these questions. Yeah, so we collect uh, quite a bit of data when we're out in these sites. So um, I'll just kind of walk through the different data sets that we collect and the methods that we use for those data sets. Um, and, and we collect these at every single site that we sample at. So first with the with the bees, uh, we collect bees in a couple different ways. Um, unfortunately, because bees are so diverse and a lot of them look very similar to each other, it's impossible to differentiate species without having a dead pin specimen that you can look through and look at a, a key with. Um, and, and we actually use a professional taxonomist who does that for us. But because of that, we have to capture and kill a bunch of of bees. Um, so the ways that we capture bees, we use a couple different passive trapping methods. One of those is called a vein trap. So it's basically a bright fluorescent yellow bucket with a blue, um, couple blue panels above it. And the bees fly into the trap and it's filled with um, soapy water that the bees fall into and, and then they um, die in the water. And then we also use a, a trapping method called pan traps. It's really common in a lot of bee studies. And they're they're basically small little plastic cups that are painted with either fluorescent yellow or fluorescent blue or are white, which is a, a fluorescent color as well. Um, and similarly, those traps are filled with uh, soapy water and the bees fly in there and then we collect them from the trap. 
Then the third way that we collect bees, and, and in my opinion, the most fun way to collect bees, is we collect bees with hand nets. So we're literally out in the field with nets chasing bees from flower to flower and swiping them off the flowers. And, and what's really cool about that method, I mean, aside from just being more fun, um, what's really cool about that method is we get data on what kind of plants the bees are actually foraging on in the site. So we get some idea of what dietary preferences are for some of our species. Um, and when we do that, we time how long it is that we have a control for uh, the amount of time we spend in each site on, on hand netting. Then we're of course interested in the blooming plants. So we collect a lot of data on blooming plant communities. And to do that, we do uh, belt transects. So they're basically 20 meter long transects and we do five of them per site and we walk along the transect and count every single blooming plant that is along the transect. And we note the species identity of the plant and the abundance of those. Um, and then since we're interested in what is happening with the forest when we thin the forest, we're collecting some data on um, some things that we expect to change with thinning versus not thinning. So one of those things is we collect canopy density measurements using a neat little tool called a densiometer. Um, it's super simple. It's a block of wood with a hemispheric mirror on it, basically, and you count up quadrats or points inside of the mirror, and that gives you an estimate of canopy density. And then we're also counting, uh, we're looking at ground cover. So what kinds of things are on the ground? Um, so you might expect post thin that there'll be a lot more woody debris on the ground because you've just chopped down a bunch of trees and distributed a bunch of woody debris around on the ground. Um, of course, we're looking at other ground cover classes than just woody debris. So we're looking at things like percent soil coverage, percent grass coverage, percent forb coverage, um, a bunch of different things. And I think, oh, and then of course the collar data, which is collected by the Forest Service, um, but then we use, we end up using that data. So when you're hand catching the bees with these nets, how do you know that you're catching a bee rather than like a fly or some kind of other flying insect? Is it just a matter of, um, like, can you tell just by looking at them? Oh, yeah, that's a bee. That's not something else. Or is it like the flies won't land on these flowers? Or maybe there aren't any flies in the forest at all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> most of the time I, I can tell visually. Um, I'll definitely, especially, I mean, my eyesight's not perfect. I wear glasses to drive. Um, so especially the smaller bees, uh, I sometimes have a hard time telling if they're bees or flies because there's a lot of things that look like bees. Um, there's a lot of creatures that mimic the color patterns of bees. Um, so in those cases, when I can't tell, I'll, I'll sometimes just catch something off of a flower um, and then I'll look at it in the net before I put it in our vial for collection. Um, and I can always tell in the net. Uh, I've spent at this point probably thousands of hours looking at bees. Um, I've probably spent hundreds of hours, if not thousands, catching bees in nets. Um, yeah. And, and there's definitely some bees where, you know, you can tell from 100 meters off that there's a bee on a flower. Like a big old bumblebee, it's pretty distinct. 
I also just want to reassure all of our listeners that um, who may be, you know, listening, thinking, oh my gosh, Scott is a bee murderer, um, <laughs> that the scale on which this is happening is is pretty small relative to, I guess, the entire environment. Maybe you want to walk us um, through that a little bit, Scott. Sure. Yeah. So we, we generally uh, are only out for actually catching bees from somewhere between three and five days a month for two months of the year. Uh, So we just sample in May and June. The spatial area that we sample in is relatively small um, because we're working in fairly closed forests. The uh, visual collection range or, or like how far bees can see our traps away from is relatively small. So we're collecting bees from a relatively small scale over pretty small temporal scales, you know, only a couple days a month. Uh, and we have not observed significant declines in particular taxa throughout the years that we've been collecting bees in Starkey. And there's been several studies that have come out that show that, you know, infrequent temporally and spatially spread out sampling like this doesn't negatively impact bee communities on the on the grand scheme of things. Uh, bees will almost certainly colonize back into our sites after we've captured bees. And what's more, uh, unfortunately, all of our native bee species, or most of them, are are doomed to die at the end of their season. So that could be a matter of a couple weeks as adults. It could be a matter of a couple months, but they'll certainly all almost or almost all die by fall. The exception is there's some bumblebee species where the adult queen will emerge at the end of the summer and then she'll hibernate as an adult throughout the winter. So really, it's just a slightly premature death. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, some species, it's it's likely a, a very slightly premature death. Some species are only out for a couple weeks at a time in, in the year as adults. Um, and then they spend all the rest of the year developing as larva or, or as pupa. So if the study, how long has the study been going on? And do you really have any idea of what your results are going to look like yet? Sure. So we've been working in this particular part of Starkey since 2020. So we've done three field seasons out there so far. um, And we have one more field season coming up this next summer. So because of that, uh, we have some idea of what differences in bee communities look like. And, and, and we have um, some idea of what's going on with the elk, although the thinning happened at the end of 2021. So we only have one year of post-thin data. Uh, so we don't necessarily have a whole lot of results from the thinning side of things yet. Um, but hopefully this next summer, we'll have a chance to look more at that. That's super exciting. Um, yeah, it will be, you know, maybe come back in a year or so when you have your results and we can have you back on the show and you can tell us all about how native bee communities are are affected by these two different land, land management um, practices. Yeah. Um, and so for anyone who's thinking, wow, that is, you know, a, a full PhD, Scott is on his way doing so much stuff. Um, Scott is doing a whole other project (laughs) that we haven't even discussed yet, um, which we're going to touch on just briefly. Um, Scott, walk us through what your, um, other sort of, uh, project is on non-pollinators in cherry orchards. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the focus of my 
dissertation is on management actions and how that influences beneficial invertebrates in managed landscapes. So we talked about a managed forest landscape. And the other landscape that I'm working in is a, a pretty heterogeneous agricultural landscape. So we're working in cherry orchards in the Dalles and in adjacent natural habitats or, or natural habitat fragments. Um, and in that that study, we're really interested in what on-farm management practices are doing to communities of non-pollinator beneficial invertebrates. So that's things like the wasps and the spiders and the beetles that I was mentioning earlier. Um, and in particular, we're interested in how different types of cover crops can play a role in influencing the community composition of those invertebrates. And so what those cover crops are is, is they're plants that the, that the cherry growers will plant underneath new trees or in um, orchards that are out of circulation. So orchards that don't have any trees in them at the moment. And those range from grass dominated blends of cover crops, which we suspect probably don't provide a whole lot of, you know, in, in terms of floral nectar resources for beneficial invertebrates, we suspect don't enrich the habitat as much to blends that have a whole bunch of different flowering forbs that we suspect probably enrich the, the landscape for beneficial invertebrates quite a bit. Um, and then as two kind of controls on the ends of that, we're interested in what the beneficial invertebrate communities look like in mature cherry orchards. So those that have, you know, trees that are between 10 and 20 years old, somewhere in that range that are more or less just grass in the understory. So they're managed very intensively. They're sprayed with, lots of pesticides, well, sprayed with pesticides as needed, and um, are, you know, they're mowed frequently. Generally, you might have a few dandelions down there and maybe a few other random smatterings of other blooming plants, but it's generally structurally very simple, and the plant community is very simple there as well. Um, so that's kind of our intensively managed control. Then on the other end, we're looking at what the beneficial invertebrate communities look like in natural habitat fragments. Um, we're also interested in those natural habitat fragments for their potential conservation value uh, for invertebrates. Um, in the Dalles, our natural habitat fragments are oak scrub. Um, so they tend to have an oak overstory of Oregon white oak. And then the understory is a mix of native glass grasses, some invasive grasses, and then a mix of native and invasive um, for or blooming plant species as well. So you brought up what a couple different types of these uh, non-pollinator invertebrates are, but one in particular I want to hone in on a little bit is the wasps. I think that wasps tend to get a little bit of a bad reputation because people think of, of yellow jackets and kind of stop there. Can you talk us through some of the benefits of wasps and maybe why they are so important. Sure. So I know like recent years, people have gotten real excited about bees, but I think wasps are even cooler than bees. Um, and you're right. They get a really bad rap and they get a bad rap from just a handful of species. So like you mentioned, yellow jackets, uh, a lot of people know paper wasps as well. Um, and some people know bald face hornets. Um, and because of some recent news in the past couple of years, you know, everybody knows about the murder hornet. Um, of course, those species, 
Very few. You know, the wasps are even more diverse than bees. So bees, we have something like 20,000 species in the world. And wasps, it's estimated that there's over 100,000, if not several hundred thousand species on the planet. Um, Of those, there's like five that people know that sting you or that you may have been stung by. I've been stung by like three different species of wasps. Uh, The rest are pretty benign little creatures. And and most people probably wouldn't even recognize them as wasps if they saw them on a flower out in in the world. Um, Most most of these little creatures are parasitoids. So they they lay their eggs in or on um, things like caterpillars or other, other types of bugs. And then their eggs develop into pupa and then they develop into adults and they eventually kill their host and emerge from their host. Um, so in terms of the benefit that they can provide people, they can be really beneficial in agricultural settings because they help control pest invertebrates. So things like aphids, for example. Um, then there's a whole suite of other wasps that are predators. So they're uh, voracious little invertebrate killing machines. Um, and they hunt all sorts of different prey. So there's like a family called Pompilidae, which they're the spider wasps. They hunt almost all those species in that family hunt spiders of some kind, including a species that hunts tarantulas. Um, and that species is like two and a half inches long or so. It's it's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, they range from really, really tiny, a millimeter or less to some of the largest flying insects that we have on the planet. So, you know, like, I think we have a, there's a wasp in the world that's like five inches, I want to say. Um, but yeah, they, they range in size, like, like crazy. They range in life history. So like I was saying, some are parasitoids, some are predators. They nest in all sorts of different places. Um, they're just super fascinating, bizarre little creatures. And some of them are really, really beautiful. Um, yeah. So I, I like if anybody's listening and wants to see a beautiful wasp, wasp, just look up jewel wasps. They're super pretty, like bright green, bright blue creatures. Yeah. And we have some of those images um, in our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. So be sure to check those out. Um, Scott, do you have a favorite species of wasp or can you not choose one? Um, I, I don't know that I have a favorite species of wasp. Um, I think, I mean, one of my favorites is the giant ichneumonid wasp, uh, which we have in Oregon. Um, and it's, it's super cool because it's about the size of the palm of your hand. Um, but it's really thin and really narrow and it has an ovipositor, which is stingers are modified ovipositors. Um, but it has an ovipositor that's just about as long as its body. So about as long as again, your palm, maybe not quite that long, um, which it can't sting you with because it's actually this super thin, delicate structure that it uses to puncture into the bark of trees. And then it uses it to find its host inside the tree, uh, which is a little larvae in the tree. And it lays its eggs on those hosts inside the tree. Um, But it's such a thin, delicate structure. It couldn't sting you with it if it tried. Are those in the Willamette Valley region or just somewhere else in Oregon? You know, I haven't seen them in the Willamette Valley. Um, 
though I I guess I wouldn't be too surprised if they occur in some of the forests around here. So transitioning a little bit more to talking about you rather than your research, um, how how did you get to to yeah studying all these different native bee species and non pollinator invertebrates? Um, what kind of led you to it? Were you always fascinated by bees um, or just ecology in general? What was what was the path you took to OSU? So I I did not actually start out interested in invertebrates specifically. Um, I started my undergrad at Washington State as a pre-med student. And then by my junior year, decided to switch over to being to going into ecology and conservation. Um, I took in particular a conservation biology class that was really influential in my decision to to switch away from medicine. Um, looking back on it, medicine would have been a terrible option for me. Um, but I, I've certainly, though I haven't been specifically interested in bugs, I've always been interested in ecology and in nature and in natural history. Uh, growing up as a small child, I could spend several hours walking to the end of our driveway, looking at flowers and bugs. Um, and, and looking back on it, uh, ecology and entomology are really pretty natural, uh, they make a lot of sense to me in terms of why I ended up where I did. I, as a kid, I used to pick up and name every single spider I saw. Um, I don't do that anymore, but I've always been pretty interested by plants and animals. And so when I finished my undergrad and was looking for uh, what to do next, um, I worked for about a year in a, a lab doing uh, like chemical cycling on a landscape scale kind of work with stable isotope stuff. And I was just a lab tech. So I processed a whole bunch of samples. Um, And then I worked for a little while with a group called Wilderness Awareness School doing outdoor nature connection and nature education. And eventually um, ended up wanting to go to grad school. So I was just looking for opportunities, funded opportunities um, in, in a master's program. And I ended up finding this one and I knew insects were something that had always kind of fascinated me and I knew I really liked working with plants. So I figured like bees was a good mix of plants and insects or plants and animals. Um, and I just haven't looked back. So you started your master's here and then you just liked it so much that you, you just wanted to stick around. Yeah. Yep. So I did my master's from 2017 to 2020. Uh, and then I started my PhD right after that. Um, Decided to take on two completely separate projects because um, yeah, I, yeah, I really enjoy research and um, I enjoy Corvallis too. <laughs> yeah, you said something really, really cool in our in our um, pre-interview that I liked, which is like when you're working in nature in you know these ecosystems, it's like one super dry year, one super wet year can completely kind of throw off your your data set or um, or just like, you know, it's it's like an anomalous year. And so that already reduces your data by one whole year. And so, yeah, I, I you'd mentioned that like masters was just so darn short <laughs> um, that really, yeah, the Ph.D. is is that added length is is really nice about that. Yeah, I definitely found that to be true with my master's. It just was too short. You know, I I did two field seasons for my master's. Um, and I felt like I spent the whole first field season just trying to figure out 
what was going on, what the general ecology of of that landscape was. Um, and I, I just wanted a more in-depth dive into it, um, which I feel like you don't get unless you do a PhD. Well, uh, sadly, I think we've reached um, the end of our show time. Thank you so much, Scott, for coming on. Um, and for me, this has been highly educational, even though we're in the same department. I know very little about invertebrates. So um, thank you so much for that. But before we go, we have um, three traditions on inspiration dissemination. Um, the first is we ask you what your favorite thing is about your research. Oh, that's a hard question. Um, <laughs> I I think my favorite thing about my research is that I get to work with all these different kinds of organisms. So I get to work with bugs and with plants, both of which I'm really passionate about and interested in. And then I've also got to dabble a little bit with um, like the ungulate kind of work and, and not so much working with the ungulates specifically, but understanding how they play into the plants and the bugs and all that. Um and then I've I've really enjoyed the opportunity to work in agricultural settings as well with rowers and um, kind of explore a different study system. So I, I guess my favorite thing would be that I get to do so many different kinds of things um, that are all kind of under this general category of ecology or invertebrate ecology. So our next tradition on the show is to ask you for a piece of advice, and it can be for anyone about anything, it can be for your past self, for undergraduates, for people who are afraid of wasps, uh, whatever you want. So what is your advice? Um, I guess my first piece of advice would be don't be scared of wasps uh, and go look at some flowers. Um, virtually every small little winged thing that you see on there that is not a bee or a fly is probably a wasp and it's not going to hurt you. Um my other piece of advice would be to undergrads, and that would be if you're interested in research, uh, I think getting research experience as an undergraduate, even if it's volunteer, is super valuable. Um, I know it was really influential for me. I know it helped me get into graduate school, um, and I, I, I know it's helped a lot of the undergrads that I've worked with um, over the years. Two great pieces of advice. I'm going to try and take your first one to heart. I have an irrational fear of most things invertebrates. So <laughs> I'm going to try and love the wasps. <laughs> You're not alone. I think a lot of people have <laughs> irrational fears of invertebrates. It's so unfairly, though. <laughs> yeah, so many of them are just cute little creatures that won't won't harm you and really don't want anything to do with you other than to look cool on a flower. <laughs> <laughs> and to to be a parasite on something else. <laughs> yeah. All right. And our third and final tradition uh, on inspiration dissemination is that you get to pick your outro song. So um, tell our listeners what it is you, you picked and why you picked it. And the why can be, it's a cool song. Cool. Um, so the song I picked was Two Shoes by the Cat Empire. Um, they're an Australian band that more people should know about. <laughs> and the why is, uh, I just like it. It's a great song. Um, it's a really fun song and it makes me think of summer and I am ready for it to be summer. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Scott, for joining us on the show 
today. And to all of our listeners out there, uh, thank you for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks for having me. He said, I own my dear, listen here. And this is what he cried. On my feet, I wear two shoes for dancing, dancing to be free. On my feet, they're paying tribute to the Bobby Marley legacy. On my knees, I got some cuts and bruises from my skating all my days. Because when I'm skating with my friends, my troubles. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.